2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid Conversations about Connecting and Communicating.
3: When Rex was four years old, I was cooking dinner one night, and he asked me if God was real. And I said, Well, what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend, and for pretend, God is real. And I was just kind of stunned. It came out from him like, that crisp. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. I thought about that for weeks after he said it.
2: That's Scott Hershewitz. And the weeks he spent mulling over four-year-old Rex's theory about God, as well as other questions and observations from both Rex and his younger brother Hank, inspired a book It's engagingly titled, Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. You know, I love your book because you start off with things your children have said, questions they've raised or complaints they've had, and you turn it into philosophical discussions that go pretty deep, and you go 360 degrees around the subject. I love that. When when did you know you wanted to do that?
3: So I think the idea for the book came a little bit in stages. Not long after we had our oldest son, Rex, I noticed that I would talk about him in class. Like if I was leading a conversation about, say, punishment, I teach philosophy in a law school. I'd start by telling my class about something Rex had done and ask them, how they thought we ought to respond to it. And that would be a way of getting a conversation about the purposes of punishment going without yet talking about any legal cases or talking any about talking about any of the academic philosophy that we'd read. And And I just noticed how much my students loved that. And then I started doing it with my colleagues too. And it worked with them because people just love to talk about kids and the crazy things they do. And they became entry points into these deeper conversations. And at some point I realized, wow, this, this works with... Uh, you know audiences uh, you know of my colleagues and audiences of my students maybe a broader set of people would be interested in approaching philosophy this way.
2: I think one of the most interesting things is at the starting point of the book where you find out that your son Rex is interested in becoming a philosopher I think a philosopher of mathematics and you ask him what a philosopher is what did he say?
3: So he really solved a problem for me because, uh, you know, from the very first time I was interested in philosophy, when I went home from college and told my dad I wanted to be a philosopher, his response was, what's that? And I realized I didn't know how to explain it. And so I just started to try and do philosophy with him. I said, well, how do you know that we aren't, you know, brains in vats hallucinating this chicken dinner that we're eating? And uh, he was not impressed. He was not impressed by that attempt to explain what philosophy is. So when Rex came home, uh, from the first day of second grade, the teacher had asked, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And he had told her a philosopher of math. And I said, "Hey, buddy, that's that's really cool that you want to be a philosopher. But what's philosophy?" And without even thinking about it, he said to me, "Philosophy is the art of thinking."
2: It sounds exactly like what you do.
3: Yeah, it's just a description that I love. It's you know I think a philosophical problem is one that you make progress on by thinking about yourself and about the world in an effort to understand both better. So ever since Rex said that, that's the description I've given, philosophy is the art of thinking.
2: That strikes a note with me, because it wasn't until I was reading your book that I remembered that when I was a kid, when I was just starting college, and I was struck by the forest of ideas that was in front of me, and I thought, this i thing of ideas is such a wonderful thing. And I thought, I want to be a philosopher someday and sit under a tree and think. Do you have your own tree? Is that a tool of the trade?
3: You know, the job doesn't come with a tree. I like to do it on a walk. So like, you know, passing (laughs) trees, I feel like is very good. But I remember having the thought as a child, I used to just like lay around my room and like to think about things. And I remember thinking if there was a job where you were just asked to think about things, that would be the job for (laughs) me. And it took about, you know, 20 years before I discovered that there was such a job and I regard myself as blessed to have it.
2: One of the things in your book that I find really interesting is that you don't lay down the philosophical law for us so much as encourage us to find good questions we can ask and come as close as we can to good answers ourselves. I mean, that, that sentence you have somewhere in the book I want you to know that philosophy is too important to leave to philosophers.
3: Yeah, so I think that the important thing about philosophy is often the activity of asking the questions and trying to understand things in a deeper way. And it's uh, my attitude towards philosophy is it's less important that I find the answers. Of course, I'm interested in the answers. That's what I'm after. But you know, I know that people have been thinking about some of these questions for thousands of years. And so I don't start with the illusion that, uh, that the answer is just around the corner, but deeper understanding often is. And uh, Bertrand Russell has this line, which I quote at the end of the book, that uh, he said, if you know, philosophy can't answer as many questions as you might like, it can at least reveal the kind of strangeness and wonder lurking just beneath the surface of everyday things. And I think kids are alive to that strangeness of wonder. And the book is in part in an effort to get adults to recapture some of that interest for themselves.
2: It seems to me, I wonder how you feel about this, because you spend your life thinking about things like this. Some of the most interesting questions are about the complexity of the world around us and the world within us. They all seem to pose almost unanswerable questions.
3: A lot of people worry that philosophy doesn't make progress, and they think it's pointless for that reason. And I think that's not true. I think it's sometimes hard to see the progress that philosophy is making so historically Um, The sciences are born out of philosophy. People are thinking through problems and then they discover that there are particular techniques that are going to be um, useful and new disciplines, new ways of investigating the world are born. So science used to be called uh, natural philosophy. And uh, to distinguish it from, say, moral philosophy or aesthetics. And so that is a huge success story, that we have things like physics and chemistry and psychology as ways of investigating the world. And then I also think that we make progress in lots of of these core areas of philosophy, like moral philosophy. So just go back to that conversation we were talking about before— what are the purposes of punishment? There's an investigation of that in Nasty, Brutish and Short. You know, one day, Hank comes home from school and he tells me a story of how he took revenge on uh, on a kid who had called him a name. Actually, he never quite tell me what he'd done to take revenge, but a kid, a kid at school had called him a floofer and Hank had gotten trouble, in trouble for however it was that he'd responded. And there's this really um, a rich body of literature about wrongdoing and the appropriate ways to respond to it. What is it that revenge might accomplish and what are the alternatives to revenge? And my experience reading this work with my students and talking to um, my kids about it is there's a lot to learn that can really help us understand um, ourselves better and and what we want when people wrong us and what the proper responses are. So I think that we can make progress. But as you say, they're really like the deep, maybe the deepest, most fundamental questions. Why does the world exist at all? How does consciousness fit in with the rest of, say, physics? Those are hard. And I don't think answers are right around the corner, but we're only going to find out if we keep up the inquiry.
2: I'm interested in your discussions with your kids about morality. Was that prompted by something that they said?
3: You know, I think of like the early years of parenting. uh, As I say in the book, it's like running a little law school where, you know, kids have got to be taught that um, they need to keep their promises. They get a kind of contracts class. They've got to be taught (laughs) that... that, you know, they're responsible for the injuries they cause to others. That's a little bit of tort law. They have got to be taught that, um, you know, they're criticizable for what they do. And sometimes, um, you expect better of them. That's a little bit of, of what happens through criminal law. So, you know, the, I think of like the early use of parenting are just like constantly presenting these moral challenges of integrating kids into a community. And, uh, But it's important to talk to them about what you're doing and why, you know, so as I I, you know explain the chapter on punishment, I think like even if you don't think the littlest kid is yet responsible for what they do, you've got to tell them the reasons you think they should have done something different so that you can introduce them to those reasons and hopefully make them aware of that for next time. And then you really can expect them to do better the next time. So, you know, I think a lot of these conversations. Um, about morality just occur organically because, you know, the struggle um, of little kids is to try and fit themselves into a community of people.
2: It was in the morality section that you came up with the uh, the trolley problem. Review it for us and, and let me know how they reacted.
3: Sure. My kids love the trolley problem. I actually taught a seminar about it that met at my house so that my kids could participate. and they Oh, set really? Up yeah, they set up a little toy train set. But a lot of people actually are really confused about what the trolley problem is. So, there's a standard story that most people know by now that a trolley's headed down a track, and if it just continues on its course, it's going to hit five people. It can't be stopped because the brakes don't work. But in the standard version of the story, you happen to be standing near a switch. And if you pull the switch, you'll divert the trolley onto a different set of track. And uh, that's good news for the five, but the bad news is there's one person who's on that track. So you'll kill that one person, but you'll save five people. And if you ask um, people what they do in this situation, not everybody, but most people say they'd pull the switch and they'd divert the trolley to kill the one person and and they'd save the five people who were on the main stretch of track. So that's a trolley story, but it's not yet the trolley problem. You need a second story to get the trolley problem going. And And a standard way of getting it going is the case that runs like this. Same story, runaway trolley headed towards five workers, but this time you're not near a switch. You're, ne- you're you're standing on a bridge. You're overlooking the scene. And there's a very heavy man who's leaning against the rail right over the trolley. And you realize that those five people are going to die. But if you push this heavy man, you'll tip him over the rail. He'll land on the track. And his body is heavy enough to stop the trolley. But of course, the trolley will kill him when it crashes into him. And if you ask people what they do in that circumstance... Again, not everybody, but the vast majority of people say they wouldn't push the man over the bridge, right? So we've got two cases where the calculus is, would you kill one person to save five? And people give disparate answers. That's the trolley problem. The question is, why are we giving different answers?
2: Before I do anything that involves somebody's death, I think I want to try screaming, the trolley's coming. Yeah. There's a chance they can hear me. Yeah. As long well, as that chance exists, I don't have to kill anybody.
3: What well, you're engaging in the time-honored practice in law school of fighting the hypothetical. My favorite version of fighting the hypothetical in this context, in the book I quote a train engineer named Derek Wilson, who wrote a letter to a newspaper once uh, saying that the trolley problem doesn't make any sense because— uh, you know, if the trolley is traveling slow enough, he'd have your solution. He said, if it's under 15 kilometers per hour, I'm just going to ring the bell on the trolley and then everyone will get off. Um, but if the trolley is was traveling faster, right, um, if it was traveling, he said, between 15 and 30 kilometers per hour, then you should pull the switch. But Derek Wilson says you're not going to be able to because those switches are always locked. They're not just available for people in the public to pull, which I love because... Um, You know, philosophers make up these crazy stories in ignorance sometimes of how the real world actually works. It turns out nobody could pull the switch. But Derek Wilson's also, I think, missing the point of the problem. The point of the problem is not to try and figure out what should you do if you're in this situation. None of us are ever going to be in this situation. If we were, we'd probably do it your way and scream, move. Um, the, The question that people are trying to get at, philosophers are trying to get at with the trolley problem is... When is it okay to take some one person's life to save others? And that's a question that actually arises a lot in the world. It arises, for instance, in conversations about abortion. That's actually where the trolley problem conversation started, was in a famous paper about abortion. It arises in the conduct of war.
2: Truman's dropping the atomic bomb is a perfect example, it seems to me. That's right. The idea that if you drop the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you'll kill hundreds of thousands of people, but 10 million people will be saved because the war will end sooner. That's really hard to predict.
3: It is really hard to predict. And that adds another... So, like, when philosophers engage in in these thought experiments they're trying to control them very tightly. So let's limit the number of things that might make a difference so we can really zoom in on the issue that we're interested in. But the real world doesn't throw up just one problem at a time. It throws up lots and lots of problems and one of them is uncertainty. So some people think it's true that that dropping those bombs um, uh, stopped the war earlier than it would have stopped otherwise. And other historians think that's not true, that the war was coming to its conclusion independent of that. And if you're a Truman trying to make that decision in advance, it's got to be even harder than it is for historians to try and make that judgment after the fact. So one of the real challenges of acting morally is that we're often acting under uncertainty.
2: I've been in interesting conversations with smart people About truth. One I remember very clearly, he got very upset because I wasn't as sure as he was that there is final objective truth. It always seems that every time we get a truth, especially about a complex situation, which has many variables like the one we've been discussing the rights of one against the rights of many, and so on, that there are always factors that you can consider that will shade the situation, shave the answer. A little differently, but I get—I I think I'm. You're the guy to talk to about this because I—I I get from your book that you absolutely affirm that there is objective truth.
3: Yeah. So we've had really interesting conversations in our house about this with my kids, who at various points, um, both of them now actually have been skeptical of the existence of objective truth. So I tell this story in the book of one night at dinner shortly after the insurrection at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. My older son, Rex, says that Donald Trump is a bad president. And my younger son, Hank, says, well, he's a bad president to us, but he's a good president to the people that like him. And I said, Hank, do you mean that they think he's good, but they're wrong? And he said, no, we think he's good, and they think he's bad, and there's nothing in the middle that says who's right. I was really struck by that. You know, it's endorsing a kind of relativism about truth, that we have our truth, and People who think Donald Trump is a good president have their truth and that there's just no objective fact of the matter. And I was curious how far he'd push it. I said, Hank, if we go outside and I say it's raining and you say it's not, is one of us right and the other one wrong? And he said, it's raining for you, but not for me.
2: Well, let me tell you how I think I agree with him to a certain extent. Yeah. it. I remember I was taught... In logic class, the, the first rule of logic in the course I was taught was that a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Mm-hmm. In the same respect is the tricky part because that has to do with the angle you come in on, the what, the, the point of view you come from. And I could, you, we could walk outside, and there could be rain hitting us, and you say, "Is it? Is this rain or what?" And Uh I say, I've been in a monsoon, pal. You call this rain?
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that example because it shows the flexibility of language. The flexibility of language means that we can have really playful conversations. So I say, it's raining. And you say, you call this rain? This isn't rain, (laughs) right? And, um, you know, what's happening there in that case is actually we're not disagreeing about the facts. We're not disagreeing about whether there's precipitation and we're getting wet. We're having what philosophers call a metalinguistic negotiation, um, which is just a fancy <laughs> I
2: love, I love, I love that. there's a name for everything.
3: Yeah, it's just That's a fancy great. word for we're arguing over how we're going to use the word rain. Right. right? The same thing right. happens when I say it's cold in here and you say no, it's not. Right. You know, like it may be that we, we're not disagreeing about the temperature. Right. We're just disagreeing about. Um, you know, something practical, like, are we going to adjust the thermostat yeah. or not, right? So that's not exactly a metalinguistic negotiation, it's, but it's like a practical conflict that seems like on the surface, it's about our language, but it's really about something else. It's like, are we going to spend the money to cool this place down more or, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think you're entirely right that we're not always disagreeing when it looks like we are. Right. Um, But sometimes we really are disagreeing. And then Hank is raising the question when when there's no other way to understand what we're what we're doing other than disagreeing. Is what is it possible for one of us to be right and the other one to be wrong? And I am committed to the view that it's possible for one of us to be right.
2: Yeah, I agree totally with that. I guess what I'm saying is something that I see reflected in your book many times over. Which is whatever position you hold. It's a good idea to be skeptical about your own position.
3: Oh, that I completely agree with. So to so to say that I think there's objective truth is not to say that I think I have it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it it's to say that it's what make the it's it's what makes the inquiry worthwhile. There's a there's a target that we're after, but um, we should all be humble because we're familiar with the endless ways that we can go wrong in our search for truth.
2: When we come back from our break, Scott Hershovitz tells me about even more philosophical challenges from his sons Rex and Hank, and we find out what they think of Scott's new book. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One The proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message, either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com clearandvivid. That's patreo dot slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Scott Hershewitz. Do you have a favorite conversation you've had with your kids, or one do you think is the most important one you've had?
3: So there's one that really had a kind of um, profound effect on my understanding of myself. Uh, so when Rex was four years old, I was cooking dinner one night, and he asked me if God was real. And I said, uh, I started the conversation by saying, well, well what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend, and for pretend, God is real. Whoa. And I was just kind of stunned. It came out from him like, that crisp. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And I I thought about that for weeks after he said it, because I've always had this puzzle about myself, which is, I don't think of myself as a believer in God in the sense that I think the stories that I learned in uh, in religious school describe the way the world actually is. But nevertheless, I go to synagogue and I celebrate holidays and I observe Yom Kippur and Passover. And I've always wondered why this disconnect? Why am I doing this if I don't actually think that God is real? And Rex helped me appreciate the answer, which is it's a kind of pretend, a kind of pretend play, really, that enriches my life in much the way that pretend play from kids enriches their, theirs. It gives me a kind of structure for celebrations and a reason to be with other people and participate in activities that are joyous. It gives me a connection to a community. And so I'm fully on board with, uh, with this idea that, uh, that for real, God is pretend, but for pretend, God is real.
2: You lead me to wonder about why the book has the title it has, Nasty, Brutish, and Short. You're not talking about your kids, are you?
3: I'm making a joke about my kids. So Thomas Hobbes— but This, this uh, kid is a po-
2: theological philosopher, right? Mean,
3: yeah, but both of them, you know, uh, have, have, their, have their deep moments like this. Uh, it, there's this line in Thomas Hobbes, who is this uh, English political philosopher who'd lived through really tumultuous times— and he found himself wondering what would the world be like without any government at all. And he thought it would be terrible. He thought it would be just a war of everyone against everyone else. And he said that life in this condition, which philosophers call the state of nature, would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So that phrase, "I'm a philosopher of law," that phrase has figured in my teaching for a long time. And uh, and at some point, I just realized, you know, watching my Uh, children do crazy things, that they were also characters who could be described as nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, You know, uh, they're not always. Uh, They're also, uh, they're really cute and kind, and they're more commonly cute and kind than they are nasty and brutish. But I I got their permission, actually, to use that as the title of the book, and I, I asked Hank, the younger one, I said to him, hey, are you nasty and brutish? And he said, I can be nasty, but I'm not British.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Another negotiation of meaning. That's right. <laughs> have your kids read the book?
3: They have. Rex has read it on his own, and uh, and Hank and I, uh, Hank and I read it together. Uh, which uh, how how our, old are they now? So they're a little bit older now than they are in the book. So the stories in the book, they're you know say between one and I think Rex is maybe ten at his oldest in the book, and now they're nine and twelve.
2: And you and Hank read the book together.
3: We did, yeah. And you know, he is um, more interested in the stories than he is sometimes in the philosophy that comes along with them. And uh, and he likes to to quibble with my telling of them sometimes. You know, he thinks that uh, <sighs> that's not that what maybe, I said. That maybe, maybe maybe I didn't have the truth. <laughs> um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do they mind the way you describe them? Do they mind being cute in the book?
3: Um, not as of yet. They're both still really enthusiastic about being in these stories and and maybe, you know, having, having their, some of their 15 minutes of fame. I worry that as we approach adolescence, maybe their attitudes will, will shift somewhat, but then I I hope they'll realize, I hope they'll come to see the book as I do ultimately, that it's kind of this extended essay about some of the things I love the most, which are my children and philosophy.
2: Do they ever worry that, conversations you're having now are going to wind up in another book?
3: They absolutely do worry that. And actually, there there won't be a sequel in a straightforward sense, because if I start a philosophy conversation now, uh, you know, Hank especially will say, are you going to use this in a book? And and it's kind of shut down. Although I found a trick recently, actually, The the Guardian, the newspaper gathered questions, philosophy questions from children, and gave me the chance to, to answer them. And the questions were amazing. Um, and actually, one thing I want people to know is it's not just that my kids are philosophers, it's that all kids are philosophers. But to, help, to get help in answering these questions from kids, I posed them to my kids. And, and, and they were super into it and helped me write up the answers. So uh, if the questions aren't coming from me, they're still philosophers at heart. <laughs>
2: What about infinity? Do they have a hard time with infinity? We talk about infinity on this show a lot. And uh, I actually know somebody who's a very serious person in a serious profession who tells me that he's afraid of the notion of infinity. It gives him a bad feeling.
3: Oh, you know, I can kind of understand that. It gives me this kind of like, you know, simultaneously kind of like feeling of awesomeness but also a feeling of smallness. And that's one of the reasons that I want my kids to think, like there's a chapter in the book that that is asking the question, how big is the universe? And one reason I want my kids to think about that question, whether it's infinite or not, is a, is a thing that scientists aren't yet sure about. But I want my kids to ponder our smallness in the context of the universe and to ask whether what happens to us really matters and maybe to kind of practice seeing themselves from the perspective of the universe. So there's a suggestion in the book from uh, a colleague of mine, Sarah Buss, who says that she thinks there's a certain kind of moral courage that comes from seeing yourself um, from the perspective of the universe, from seeing yourself as small to the point of insignificant, from recognizing that what happens to you doesn't actually matter that much, but still letting others loom large and letting others be important, right? She thinks that's the kind of worldview that many of the people we admire most have that they're they regard themselves as insignificant and therefore willing to sacrifice themselves for others. So I think that's kind of one reason to think about. Uh uh even if not infinity just the pos- just like the 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 largeness of what we're a part of and what a, what a tiny fragment of it we are.
2: Let me push back a little on that to understand a little better what you mean. Yeah. It sounds to me like Letting a kid in on the idea that they're insignificantly small compared to the rest of the universe robs them a little bit or takes away a little bit of the chance for them to say, I deserve to be here. There's something I can do that can help things get better. But It could lead, on, on one hand, it seems to me, to saying, it doesn't matter what I do, nothing will change.
3: Yeah, so I do think there's a risk. Um, that, uh, you know, and one thing that um, Sarah Bass talks about is this this kind of worry that if you come to see yourself as insignificant, maybe you'll also come to see other people as insignificant. And then you won't want to be the kind of person who's helping, or maybe even you'll permit yourself to be the kind of person who's harming. And uh, And one worry I've got about this attitude that she sees in a lot of um, people who exhibit moral courage is that maybe it's incoherent. If you think that other people matter, you should think that you matter. And if mm-hmm. you think that you don't matter, maybe you should think that other people don't matter. But I, I think there's a kind of um, uh, beauty in this incoherence where you shift perspectives and see yourself as insignificant at the same time as seeing other people as significant that really allows you know people, when we're thinking about folks like King or Gandhi, to lead beautiful lives, lives of great sacrifice. Um, you know, but I also, you know, I, I asked my kids, there's a conversation in the book where, you know, actually with each of them, I've asked, hey, do you think what happens to us matters? And both of them have sort of come around to like the ability to shift into this perspective of the universe and say, no, not really. But at the same time, you know, I, I asked Rex when he said that, I was like, would it be okay if I punched you in the face? And he says, no, he's like, it may not matter, but it matters to me. And I think that's another important lesson to take, that maybe we don't matter to the universe, but we matter a great deal to each other. And, uh, and, and maybe that's all the kind of mattering that we need.
2: Well, this shows me that thinking about all this stuff is infinitely interesting. That I hope we don't get such objective truth that we stop asking questions like this.
3: I, I would feel sad if philosophy reached its end too I don't think it's in I don't think we're in any danger uh, <laughs> right. but uh, but you know there's so much joy in these conversations and one thing I want to communicate to people is there's especially joy in having these conversations with kids because they're naturally interested in these questions and a lot of adults don't uh, don't take them seriously and uh, and don't engage their kids and I think that's one reason that people um, that people shy away from these questions as they get older.
2: One of the things I came across when I was looking you up was that you clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is that right?
3: That's right. Yes.
2: That must have been a, an enriching experience, I would think.
3: It was. It was really wonderful. I say sometimes it was the best job that I ever had, but I would never. I would never want it back. Um, Why? But, you know, it, uh, it you know, it was. It's a really demanding job. Um, I think. Well, what, you is, know,
2: what does a clerk do?
3: So the clerks help the justices um, do their jobs. So a lot of it is um, uh, thinking with them in advance about the arguments in a case and then helping them draft opinions after the arguments have been heard and the justices have decided uh, which way they're going to decide a case. It's also the, the Supreme Court, a lot of people don't know this, has a a com- almost completely discretionary docket. They choose which cases from lower courts they're going to hear. And so one of the main tasks of the clerks is to look at the 8,000 petitions that they get every year and help the justices find the 50 to 100 cases that they're going to want to hear. So, it was a demanding job. Just there's a lot of work. And then Justice Ginsburg is very meticulous about how that was very meticulous about how that work was done. She, you know, to the extent that like she never wanted the copy the copy editors at the court to find a mistake in something that had come out of her chambers. So, you know, for, uh, for, the, for the year that I spent with her, it was a six to seven day a week job working, you know, 12, 14 hour days. Um, and I learned more from her, um, really, than, uh, than maybe anyone else that I've ever gotten the chance to work with, both about law and about uh, life. But uh, I'm glad to have a little more free time now. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you for spending some of your free time with me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Before we go, we we always have seven quick questions at the end of a conversation. Do you mind? Absolutely. They're, that'd be fun. They're generally about communication. First question, what do you wish you really understood?
3: So I think the thing I most want to understand right now is how to parent a teenager, so, <laughs> oh, forget uh, you know, it. I you know just, you've done this. I can tell you, just forget it. You know, <laughs> no, it's, but, it's not going to work?
2: No. During between about 12 and 19, their minds are controlled from outer space.
3: Well, that is that is just the age we've reached. And I realized, like, you know, I spent a lot of time with kids when I was younger. My mother was a preschool teacher. And, you know, and I feel like I get them and I take so much joy in them. And now I've reached a, a new phase of life and I've realized that I'm unprepared for this uh, for this part of parenting.
2: <laughs> I think the main thing is to keep the conversation going that you got started in the early years. You sound like you have a great basis already. Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
3: That's a really good question. I, you know, I think I want to enlist help of... uh you know, of uh, philosophers here sort of thinking about, like, Descartes and methods of doubt and, and want to ask them what they would accept as evidence that they're wrong, right? You know, like, um, what, would persu- what would persuade you, right, that you've got your facts wrong? And I think that, you know, if, if you start the inquiry that way, there's a little bit of pressure. They'll sound unreasonable if they say nothing would persuade them, right? So, <laughs> right. so, so, so they'll have to tell you what sort of evidence they might accept, and maybe that's an opening to have a conversation.
2: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: The, the question that made me laugh the most was when Rex finally got around to asking how babies were made, he was taking a bath and, uh, you know, he'd had a little brother for a couple of years, but it, he'd never really directly asked the question. He finally directly asked, and I gave a clinical explanation of exactly how it works. And uh, and he said to me, wow, our bodies are weird. And I said, "I said, yeah, they are. Do you do you have any more questions about them?" And uh, and he said, "Yeah." And I was I was really a little bit anxious about what came ne- came next. But the question the question is, "Yeah, I, I got another question. Why does it feel like there's water in my ear?" <laughs>
2: that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's perfect. Perfect. Okay, next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: I'm not sure I know the answer to this. The, the context in which I encounter compulsive talkers most commonly is in law school is a handful of students who really want to um, to share their view about every question that arises in in class and actually um the key is not to let them get going so I, I, I become very practiced at uh you know asking the room if there are any questions and just not seeing the people whose hands are always raised
2: if you know you've got one coming you head them off at the pass
3: exactly yeah
2: great <laughs> let's say you're at a dinner table you're sitting next to someone you don't know how do you start a genuine conversation
3: I think the thing I most want to figure out when I'm in like a, a social setting like that is just like what's the coolest thing about being this person, right? You know, what part of life are they involved in that that I'm not? What you know, what um, what insight they have? And so sometimes I'll just ask people, oh, like what what's the coolest thing about your job, or what's the um, you know what's the best thing about being you? What gives you confidence? I think recognizing. In like in a weird way, recognizing that you don't actually need it. That um, you know, I think one of one of the the most important realizations that I had in life is I, I kept waiting to feel like a grown up, and then I realized that nobody actually feels like a grown up. That we're all just kind of, of winging this and and don't really know what we're doing. Um, and that if you're anxious, probably everybody else in the situation is anxious too.
2: Last question. What book changed your life?
3: Wow! So th- I think there's so many, so many answers to that question. I'm going to give one that relates back uh, to this book. There's a really lovely set of essays by Michael Lewis um, called Home Game. Uh, he wrote a series of essays, I think, originally for Slate um, after the birth of each of his children, and then collected them into this book called Home Game. And they're a really it, like, wickedly funny stories about his children and about his foibles as a parent that then lead to serious reflections about parenthood. And, uh, and that book was a, kind of a key part of my having the idea for Nasty, Brutish, and Short. It kind of gave me a model of I can tell people funny stories about my kids and have that as the kind of um, uh, the, the, the tantalizing thing that then gets you engaged in a deeper set of issues.
2: That's great. And it's great that you took the time to be with us today. I really enjoyed it. And we didn't
3: even need a tree. This was really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
2: This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Scott Hershevich is director of the Law and Ethics Program and professor of law and philosophy at the University of Michigan. His book is titled Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chamey. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with James Zimring. His new book, Partial Truths, entertainingly explores how easily we can be confused and even misled by fractions. One of the stories I love is when A and Restaurant was trying to take on McDonald's, uh, the Quarter Pounder. So they came up with a hamburger that was bigger and was cheaper. And they figured what would be better than that. And when they released it on the market, it was a colossal failure. And after the fact, they did a market analysis. And they realized that their hamburger, which was a third of a pound, people thought it was less meat. Three is less than four. So I'm not going to pay more money for a third when I could buy a fourth. James Zimring, and how we can avoid falling into the fraction trap. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
1: Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more.